Hello and welcome to another Paro seminar. Uh, this week uh, I wanted to, or this month, I wanted to look at uh, Paro theology a little bit deeper. And uh, the title for this seminar is Mapping Paro Theology. And the reason for that is I, I really wanted to um, explore the underlying structure of how uh, I understand um, uh, the nature of being human, the nature of this lack, this dissatisfaction that we have, um, and try to look at a uniquely radical theological perspective on that. So it'll hopefully make sense. I think I was inspired to do this because I was talking to a good friend um, who is very into the Enneagram. And as we were talking, I was kind of articulating my kind of concerns. And um, then I thought, okay, this should be quite interesting because there's lots of people who I know, lots of good friends who are interested in the Enneagram. And um, there's a lot of people who engage with Richard Rohr, who's very into that, and also who like my work. And I thought, okay, this would be an interesting place to begin to look at the similarities and the differences. Uh, so in the description for this seminar, you'll notice that I mention things like uh, depth psychology, the Enneagram, progressive Christianity, liberal Christianity, uh, humanism. Um, and I, I say that there's something different about what parotheology is doing than those variety of things. And at first they can all look very different. So you've got, say, depth psychology or analytical psychology, uh, thinking of someone like Jung. You have the Enneagram, um, someone like Rohr. You've got progressive Christianity, liberal Christianity. Then you've got humanism, which seems very different as well. But what I want to argue is that actually at a structural level, uh, they all come from a very similar place. It's the same with New Age spirituality as well. That would, would, that would fit in with this. Um, confessional Christianity, I think, can fit into this, uh, though not exclusively. Um, so there's, there's this whole um, group of things. And as I say, people would often think that they're very, very different. Like, what does liberal Christianity have to do with, uh, say, humanism? Uh, but uh, I want to talk about how in the midst of their differences, there is something that they share. And, and what is that? Uh, so we'll start there. Okay, so... What they share, I would say, is that they have a similar notion of uh, where we start from, where we are presently, and where we're going. Right? These three dimensions. Where we come from, where we are, and where we're going. And in its most traditional uh, understanding, you can say that there was once a time of fullness, of wholeness, of oneness that was in the past. We currently live in a state of fallenness or of a sense of separation or lack or dissatisfaction. And we want to return to this place of wholeness and completeness uh, that kind of lies in front of us. Now then, you can have various ways of interpreting that. For example, one might say that uh, this sense of dissatisfaction and this lack that we experience as human beings is a mere illusion. It isn't real. Uh, and what we need to do is simply see through the illusion and realize that we are all one. There is no separation. There is no lack. This is just um, a veil, an illusion that we, that we, um, that we embrace. Uh, others might want to say, no, it's, it's a real thing. It's ontological. It's a there is a sense of a fall, a lack um, that, is, um, that is real, that has to be bridged. So in the former, you have more Eastern types of religion will tend towards saying that this is a type of illusion. And then in Western forms of religion, you have more this sense that no, it's a bridge that needs to be, uh, a chasm that needs to be bridged. You can just think about those tracts where you have God on one side, humans on the other, and this gap between the two and then the cross fits in the middle, right? You know, closing the chasm. Um, and there's a, there's a multitude of ways that this three-tier structure can manifest. So someone might think the past, as in uh, a point in history, was when everything was good, whenever we were at one with nature or before civilization and we were kind of lived in more primitive environment. 
So there is an historical past. So that's kind of, you could be, uh, you know, not a spiritual thing. It's like, no, there was a point in our history as human beings when we had a much more basic whole uh, engagement with each other and with the environment that then fell apart with civilization or industrialization or whatever, and that we can get to a place of returning to that type of primitivism. Uh, but it doesn't need to be a, like a, a going back, it can be a going forward, that we want to um, move forward, not lose what all the advantages we have now, but reconnect with something archaic. Or in our individual lives, we might think that there was a time of wholeness in our childhood. That was when we felt at one, we, we didn't have these cares and concerns that we carry with us today. And uh, we want to somehow get that childlike naivety back in our lives. Or it can be in the previous relationship we had or whatever. It can be in a religious sense. There was a time when we had oneness with God and then we lost that and we want to return to that. So there's a whole pile of ways that you can look at this. And I'll, I'll, I'll take three examples from three of the uh, traditions that I mentioned. So the first is the Enneagram. Now, I have no problems with the Enneagram. The Enneagram can be a, a useful thing for some people. They find it helpful um, as a way of not simply working out the type of person they are, but more importantly, working out their weaknesses that they might be blind to. So I know a lot of people who find the Enneagram useful uh, because it reveals to them uh, their uh, their weaknesses, their anxieties, the, what stresses them out, what gets them uh, upset, or the things that they give themselves to in unhealthy ways. So it's a, it's a tool for uh, revealing um, some of our pre-conscious uh, and maybe unconscious motivations. Um, but and there's not very much known about the Enneagram. Uh, many of you will know this, but uh, I think the first ever uh, symbol, the, the, the Enneagram symbol was discovered, it was like uh, four and a half thousand years ago, something like that on a rock. Uh, and we don't know much about where it came from. Um, I think most people feel that it had something to do with the Sufi, uh, the Sufis, and also the, the kind of desert mystics who became the desert fathers. And, and that Sufi uh, dimension of Islam actually predates Islam. So this is not like the Sufis were kind of grafted into Islam in many ways. So this is pre-Islam, pre-Christianity. There is this, uh, this uh, symbol and this, um, this practice. And the, one, of the, uh, one of the mythologies around the Enneagram, as I say, this might not be connected with its original um, notion because we are completely disconnected from that now. But one of the finding mythologies is that we start as one. We are one with everything. Uh, there is just the one, right? And we have to enter into being. And we enter into being through one of nine doors. There are nine doors in which uh, uh, we enter into reality, into physicality, into uh, individuality. And depending on which door you enter into being through, you will have certain strengths, you will have certain skills, certain proclivities, but also uh, you are marked with this sense of separation and you will have a series um, of weaknesses or tendencies of things that you think you need to do to return to oneness. So perhaps, and I don't know the numbers or anything like that, so I'm just going to throw this out. Say a number three is someone who works hard, uh, is always uh, very conscientious. They're always uh, working later than other people. They're very reliable. They get a job done, right? Um, and I don't know if that's a number three or not, but let's say it is. Then maybe the, the bad side of that is they think that they have to work hard in order to be back in oneness to be to find equilibrium they have a tendency to be legalistic they have a tendency to work themselves too hard um, to not enjoy life and relax right or someone might be the romantic say number four or whatever and they they have a certain uh, 
connection with people, they value relationships, they value friendships, they're very empathetic. Uh, but then the weakness is that they're always trying to find oneness through relationships. They're trying to find, they feel incomplete unless they're with other people. Right. Uh, as I say, these are random examples. I don't know the numbers. Um, but you see that there are positive elements and then there is this, this negative element. And so the Enneagram uh, is based on this idea of there is a oneness, there is a fall from oneness through the doors of being. And then there is a desire to return to that, to get back what we've lost. And the way that you do that is you become aware of the dark side, the shadows, the, 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 the tendencies you have to try to work to get that back. And as you become aware of those things and you begin to manage them, you uh, are able to um, uh, rob them of their power. And, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, it's a way of, revealing the illusion of going, well, there is no set separation. Um, so that's that's an underlying mythology that you'll find some people who are very into the Enneagram explore. Other people just use it, as I say, because it's a useful tool, it's fine. Um, but then take another example, take, uh, say, liberal, a liberal Christianity. Uh, take someone like Matthew Fox. You have a similar notion. Matthew Fox wrote the book Original Blessing, and in it, he is arguing that there is an original oneness, an original plenitude, an original wholeness. Um, and then there is a fall, there is a loss of that, and then there is a possible return. And for him, the mystic's journey is the journey back to this original blessing or the remembrance of this original blessing. The separation, sin, is not original. So it's a play on original sin, original blessing. It's like sin is not, the, is not original. It doesn't come first. It's actually what comes after. You can't lose something unless you have it. You can't be separated from something unless you were one with it. Uh, it has to come after. Uh, and that's a notion that you'll find within various progressive and liberal spiritualities is this, this notion of against original sin, right? Against that notion within conservative Christianity. Um, and uh, there's a, all numbers of progressives who kind of write against that. And then uh, let's take um, another example. Well, let's take humanism again as an example. Um, especially kind of humanism is very closely tied with evolutionary psychology, uh, you'll see in America. And so again, the notion is this, that uh, there was a time whenever we were, um, uh, you know, within evolutionary psychology, instinctual animals, animals who are part of their environment, uh, the instincts were there to ensure the individual and the species survival. So animals have instincts. Those instincts are discrete, as in they, they're connected to something like food or shelter or mating. They can be satisfied by getting mating, food, uh, a shelter, and they are in the service of life. And then at a certain point, uh, when human beings uh, started to clump together and, and started to uh, engage with other, other human beings, the problem was that uh, these instincts became dangerous to us. Um, so for example, I guess it's like, do you know the, um, what do you call it? The uh, marshmallow test, where they get kids and they say to a kid, you can have one marshmallow now, or if you don't eat that marshmallow, for like an hour or whatever, and we'll give you two marshmallows. And uh, some kids just immediately eat the one marshmallow, right? <laughs> and then other kids go, no, I'm gonna wait off for an hour and, and get two. And uh, supposedly uh, the, the kids who wait and have two are more likely to defer pleasure um, uh, uh, for longer and therefore be able to do things like train or save money, et cetera, et cetera, and therefore can sometimes have uh, an easier life than those who are immediately wanting to gratify. So in this notion, you have you know, our, our immediate instinctual need to say eat, uh, especially if there's a scarce resource, might put us into conflict with another group. Um, and that conflict is actually destructive to everybody. And so what happens is human beings have to construct civilization in order to try to uh, work around the negative 
dimension of these conflictual instincts and scarce resources and all of that, what that created. So civilization is a way of, in a sense, reintegrating us back into uh, uh, the preservation of the species into kind of life. So you again have this notion of a type of uh, instinctual oneness with the environment. You have like a, a, a fall, a certain kind of like a problems arise, and then you have potential solution. How do we create a society that enables us to share, to cooperate, um, to make sure that our instincts don't, when they compete with one another, uh, result in a, a destructive behavior? but actually can be um, uh, managed in, in such a way that it's useful for everybody. Okay, so there's, there's three different examples of this basic structure, a oneness, a, a, a loss, and a return. And I would say ultimately that is a religious frame. When I talk about religion, that's what I mean, primarily that, that three-tier structure. And I would say it's universal. You find it in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of places. Um, we have this sense that we lost something and a desire to get back to it, even if getting back to it means going into the future. So for example, the conservative is somebody who thinks that the, the best is in the past. So they tend to look back for the kingdom of God and the uh, liberal is the one who is eschatological. They tend to think that the best is in the future. So they look forward to a kingdom of God, a utopia in the future. Uh, but both are uh, wanting to get away from something that is problematic in the present. All right, now then, um, now that I've kind of outlined that religious structure, I want to try to argue that um, this is a type of fantasy that actually a more accurate way of describing reality is to say that we start with the fall we start with a sense of lack and then we fantasize or we imagine that there is a wholeness which we've lost and then we fantasize that there is a way to return to that so just to give you a visual of that, you have here, uh, you have the wholeness, then you have the fall, and then you have the return to wholeness, the discovery of a new wholeness. In this, you start in the middle. <laughs> you start with the fall. Then you imagine backwards to a time of perfection and wholeness and completeness, and then you fantasize to the future to a return to that. So it's a different dialectic structure. And it sounds weird at first because you go, well, how do things start with a fall? Oh, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Um, and now in theology, this is called original sin. I think this is one of the great insights of the medieval theologians. Um, uh, one of their great, uh, it's, it's basically expressed in a multitude of ways now in, in psychoanalysis and existentialism, postmodernism. But they were really, I think, the first to really grasp it. And it's, 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 a, it's a weird concept. It's amazing that they, they find it um, because it's, a, it's the idea that no, what's original is a loss. In everyday life, you can't lose something unless you have it. But they're talking about a loss that actually happens before you have anything. Uh, Lacan had a good analogy for it where he said that to be a human being, to become human, the child is faced with a dilemma that is not unlike um, being held up at gunpoint by someone who says your money or your life. Because uh, if someone does that to you, they hold a gun up and they say your money or your life, well you've got two choices. You either give them your money and you know, if you give them all of your money then what you're doing is you're giving them all your value, all the stuff that can allow you to live in the world and enjoy the world and get by in the world. So it's a loss, a very very severe loss. But if you try to keep the money, then you will lose your life. You won't even, you, you know, you won't even be able to enjoy it. And uh, Lacan says, this is a little bit like the infant. You either give up uh, a treasure or you give up a selfhood. And uh, in psychoanalytic terms, the latter is psychosis, where your sense of self is, 
is, is under threat and you lose your sense of self, etc., etc. The neurotic is the one who gives up their pleasure, their, the, the money that they have. But the trick here is that it's not that there's a somebody who's making that decision, it's this decision that creates you. And uh, to put it in a nutshell, it sounds very counterintuitive, but it's like when you separate it from the mother, when you, not just physically, you physically separate from the mother whenever you're born. That's like a physical separation. You were part of your mother. You were part of, she, she, her body was nourishing you. you. You could not make a distinction between infant and mother. It's only at the very end when the, the umbilical cord is cut that, that you really have a separation. But there's also a psychological separation which happens a few months later. And that's where the individual kind of begins to realize that they are a self. They begin to have a sense of their selfhood. I am Peter. There is an inner world and there is an outer world. Before that, there's no inner world or outer world. There's a, it's, it's a, it's a, you can imagine it like a chaos of feelings, a chaos of explosions in your body, but without a center. This centering is the second separation when I go, I am a, an individual. Now, what's interesting is at this point, the infant feels they've lost something. It's like, I had something wonderful. And now I'm separate and it's like the uh, uh, weaning process. It's like, I wanna get back to the womb. I wanna get back to that oneness and that wholeness and that, 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 that lack of separation. But, it's actually the separation that creates the self, right? Without the separation, there would be no self. Uh, so there is no self before the separation. <laughs> you are the separation. You are the result of this lack. That, that you are born out of a separation. Um, so it's an illusion. The idea of going back to that is actually losing yourself, uh, which is eventually we do with death. Um, there's also, uh, there, in, in physics, there's examples of this, um, but that's not really my area of expertise. Uh, so I've read a little bit about it, but it's hard for me to remember everything. But it's, um, if you have a vacuum and then you lower the energy within the vacuum, things start to arise. So there's a notion some physicists play with that the universe is created from a lack that is drawn out of nothingness itself. So there's a, there's a type of weird nothingness that generates everything. So there's a cosmological way of thinking about this. For anyone who's into physics, feel free to, to delve into that um, at, a, at a deeper level. Uh, but there's also in psychoanalysis, this is the notion of the self is born out of a kind of lack. And in theology, this is called original sin. There is an original loss that starts everything starts everything up gets everything going um, and then what happens is you have because you experience this loss you fantasize you imagine that there was something you lost and the problem is it's only a fantasy it's only an image it's there's nothing that can actually do that and this is the difference between this a paratheological approach which makes use of psychoanalysis and radical theology the, the idea is that, no, the, the wholeness that you seek, whether it's in that last relationship, whether it's in childhood, whether it's in prehistory, in like an evolutionary term, whether it's um, in a religious way, is a type of fantasy. And it is a fantasy that actually makes you more unhappy, that makes you more uh, self-destructive and, and more destructive to other people. Um, this is why you know, someone like Slavoj Žižek talks about how uh, uh, poetry and fascism have always been interconnected. Because poetry, uh, not exclusively, but poetry, the, the best poets often exhibit psychotic type of tendencies. And you have this, this notion of oneness, of wholeness, and a lot of poetry is, is designed to evoke this, this experience. That, of, that we've lost to somehow bring us into this, not all poetry at all, but you know, if you've read some poetry, you know that a lot of poetry is like drawing you into that, that oneness again. And uh, from the psychoanalytic perspective, uh, that's a lovely feeling to have, nothing wrong with that experience. 
But when we give ourselves to it, um, it causes basically all the human problems that we can imagine. The human sufferings that, um, that we are all too aware of are connected with this frantic pursuit of getting back to the oneness or of hating somebody else because they have it and you don't. Fantasizing, fantasizing that your partner, when you break up with someone, that they're having a great time, that they're having so much sex and they're, having, they're just out partying all the time and they're having a blast. You start to fantasize that the other has the one, has the thing, and you don't. So we hate the other because they have it. We pursue it ourselves and destroy ourselves, or we get the thing that we imagine will make us one, and we realize that it doesn't work. It might make our lives a bit better, but it doesn't work. Hence, of course, a lot of people who commit suicide after winning the lottery, because for a lot of people, winning the lottery is the answer. Getting all of that money is the, is the thing that will make everything better. And of course, the horror then is in fulfilling your dreams you realize that your dreams do not fulfill you. In getting that massive amount of money, it doesn't fix the traumas of your life and in fact can make them even worse. It can, can really feed them and make them more difficult. Very, very traumatic thing to, to experience. Um, so that experience of lack is constitutional. It constitutes us. You can't get rid of it. It's what makes us who we are. Uh, there's, we have a fantasy in the West of lovers, comes from the Greek mythology, that, there is, that lovers were once a whole and then they separated. And when you find the person you love, you reconnect, you become whole again. So we have that notion of the other who completes us, who makes us whole. And that's another way that this expresses itself. But that entire fantasy, again, is so destructive for so many people. Because yeah, you can feel like that a little bit from time to time, but the love really kicks off when you realize that I don't complete you and you don't complete me because that's a fantasy. What we can do is we can enjoy being incomplete together, right? We can, we can enjoy this, uh, this fact that we don't fit quite together. Somehow we have to get to thinking that that is a beautiful thing, to affirming that. But if you think that it's all about being one with the other person, then you'll just go from one relationship to another, or you'll find yourself caught up in a relationship that you can never find any pleasure in, or very little pleasure in. So um, this notion, you fantasize this wholeness, and then you fantasize the kingdom of God in front of you, some way of getting back to that. This entire way of desire is the way we see contemporary society structured. We give ourselves frenetically to um, you know, the pursuit of more money or bigger houses or whatever it is, somehow thinking, not consciously, but somehow giving ourselves over to this notion that if we finally get that house, we finally get to retire with that money, everything's gonna be great. Um, okay, so. There's the second structure. First structure is you start with wholeness, then fallenness, then return to wholeness. That's one, two, three. The second structure is two, one, three. You start with the fallenness, two. You, you, you imagine wholeness, one, and then you fantasize returning to that, three. It's a different structure. What about Christianity then? Because Christianity would seem to be the perfect example of the first structure. You have God whole and complete, right? This is the one. We fall, we are, we're in Eden, we're having a great time, then we fall into this lack, uh, into what's called sin, which isn't about, it's not primarily an ethical category, it's a category of separation, a sense of non-oneness. And then we, through salvation and going to heaven, then we get back the wholeness again. So that's a traditional way of thinking about Christianity today. Um, so it seems like the paradynamic example of religion. But I think this is a misunderstanding. Um, and the way to understand it is, is I want to make a, a comment in general is when you want to change someone's mind, or, well, here's the thing about philosophy, thinking. We often uh, uh, approach philosophy like someone approaches buying a product. 
we can go into a store, we can pick a product off the shelf, we can look at it, put it into the trolley of our mind. So you've got an idea, you look at it, you put it into the trolley of your mind. But really, when we, by the time we come to think, by the time we come to reflect on the world, our trolley, our mind is already full of ideas, right? We've been read to, we have a language, we have a culture, we have traditions. So you don't come to thinking with a clear mind and then somehow analyze uh, what's good and what's bad through pure logic and put it into our heads. Uh, it's actually much more messy than that. You take things out of your mind, you be like, that's not a good idea. You, you find something else that fits better. And it, it's a much more uh, interesting and dynamic type of experience. And for the philosopher Hegel, philosophy has to exist within that. Uh, you don't start from scratch. Uh, you always start from somewhere. And there's a truth in wherever you're starting from. Uh, and truth simply means um, that it exists, so therefore there must be something to it. Like there's no square triangles in the world because that's not possible, right? So you st whatever position you're starting from, um, take it seriously, you start to reflect and actually you start to change by taking things seriously. Instead of moving away from something, you go deeper into it. This is Kierkegaard. He talks about how um, the more deeply you look at something, your tradition, your culture, your religion, the more you might dialectically move beyond it. But it's because you're going into it, you're thinking through it, you're taking it more seriously than everybody else. It's a weird form of the way to get away from something is to actually go into it. Um, so this is a, a notion of dialectics, uh, is that that you shouldn't kind of throw, throw away your past, but rather somehow the better way to escape it is to go deep, more deeply into it, to think about it in a more serious way than everybody else around you. Um, you, you delve, you jump in. And the reason why I'm saying this is uh, you start where people are at, right? There's the old story about this old guy Seamus in Ireland and uh, somebody asks him, an American tourist, how do you get to Tipperary? And Seamus says, well, I wouldn't start here, right? And it's ridiculous because where's the, where's the tourist going to start from, right? You, they are starting from there. So if you take a story like um, Abraham and Isaac, uh, one way of thinking about that story is to think that child sacrifice was very common at that time. And so this story starts by assuming that. It assumes that child sacrifice is, exists and even is a good thing. But then the story, uh, you get up there to the mountain and Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac and then God says, don't do it, right? Here's, a, here's an animal instead. So within the story then there's a critique. It's like, oh no, there's something else, a better way to go about things. And then it, you move on from that. So what you have is instead of saying sacrifice is wrong, it starts from within the tradition. It goes, yeah, there's a reason for this. You know, this is a, an attempt at fidelity. This is an attempt at um, uh, making sure that uh, you don't hold tightly to the material, whatever it is. And then there's a substitution and a change. So in the same way, all of us, Pretty much, we, all of us start with this notion of a desire for wholeness and oneness and completeness. And Christianity starts there. You have God whole and one. You have this notion of us being in the Garden of Eden, everything being great. But here's where Christianity starts to do something very significant. Uh, you have throughout the Christian narrative, throughout the biblical text, the emptying and the silencing and the disappearing of God. This is called kenosis. So God's at first talking away and then God's talking through other people and then only through certain people and then silence and then God becomes human, right? There's this broad trajectory in the text of like God being you know, everywhere and walking in the garden. You, you could talk directly to God. You didn't have to talk through a prophet or anything like that right through to the prophets and then this very, very individual prophets and then say 400 years of nothing and then into uh, the whole notion of Christ. So what you have, right, is this self-emptying of God. 
But then at the central moment of Christianity, the central event of the crucifixion, you have something even more significant happens. You have the experience where God experiences self-alienation. God feels a lack within God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now the idea is that you're identifying with Christ. You identify with God, you want to be like God, you want to return to God. You are grafted into Christ. And then you, uh, the Christ experience is the experience of self-alienation, that God experiences a lack within God. And then after that, you have the epoch of the Holy Ghost. Jesus then goes up to heaven. He actually, he's walking with, a, there's two, isn't it, two disciples, the road to Emmaus. Uh, Jesus walks with them. Um, as soon as they break bread together and they realize that it's Jesus, he disappears. So in other words, they're breaking bread in remembrance that that's where Christ is. Christ is now in the community of believers, sacrificing, doing the work of love, helping each other, and the epoch of the Holy Ghost, right? Um, so this, this move is, 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 is seen throughout Christianity. And the reason why that's important, I think, is that if you're gonna preach this, there's a very simple message, which is we all want to become like God. We all want to get rid of the lack. Well, in Christianity, we find that if you want to be like God, then you have to become fully human. Right? So that's the trick. The trick is you go, yeah, you want to be like God, great. So identify with God. And then what does God do? God takes you right back to the place of full humanity, right up to the point where you experience your own internal self-contradiction. You experience your crucifixion moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experience this place of absolute rupture, which is called in philosophy, the death of God. It is the experience of um, uh, a crack within everything. And it's that experience that, that, that on, the, on the other side of that, as you embrace that experience, as you, like Kierkegaard would say, you take it into yourself. You don't try to resist it. You don't try to flee from it. You actually bring it into yourself. You fully experience the crucifixion moment. Then you're able to affirm it. God arises after the death of God. So one of the central sacraments of Christianity is the Last Supper where we eat and drink and remember the death of God. And in remembrance of the death of God, in the Eucharist, God is there in the community, right? Which is what my book, The Divine Magician, is kind of ultimately about, right? Is that in this rem remembrance of the loss, in this actually joining together in the loss, in a community that is gathered around the loss, there is salvation and transformation. Just like in AA, it's like people can flee their alcoholism, they can deny it, they can think that they're fine, they're in control of it. But then there is a collective of people, all walks of life, who come together, who do not flee it, but embrace it, who go, we have this problem. We look at it, we fully acknowledge it. And it's actually in the full acknowledgement, the full acceptance of being an alcoholic, that is step zero. You know, there's a 12 steps, but before the 12 steps are step zero, just like uh, lifts in Europe, there's floor zero. As step zero is full acceptance that you are an alcoholic. That's why you have to say, my name is Pete, I'm an alcoholic. Full acceptance of that uh, in a community that accepts you, that doesn't ask you to change, that just listens. But weirdly, in the full acceptance of that reality, you can therefore begin to change and then the 12 steps take effect. If that first step hasn't really happened, it could take months or years, you can go to an AA meeting and sit there and never say anything, but at that moment when you're willing to speak it, then you can begin to make a change. There's actually a beautiful movie about, and I forget the name of it, but it's a pilot and he's, a, he's an alcoholic and he gets on the plane, he has a few drinks, so he's, he's over the limit, he's drunk while he's flying this plane. But there's a mechanical failure and he is able to actually uh, do something very difficult. He's able to basically uh, uh, save the plane and save all the passengers. But as the film progresses, you realise that they're beginning to work out that he was drunk. So even though he saved everybody, uh, he was over the limit and he was, he's trying to deny this. 
he's trying to hide it, he's trying to cover over it, other people are trying to cover over it. Uh, but eventually, uh, he accepts that he's an alcoholic. And he accepts it and he fully embraces it. He doesn't try to flee from it, he doesn't try to hide from it. And he's got the perfect reason to flee from it. He saves hundreds of people's lives, right? But he eventually accepts it. And you realize, I think if I can remember the movie correctly, he's, kind, he's sitting in an AA meeting and he's kind of remembering this entire story. And he eventually gets to the point where he can affirm what he is. He's an alcoholic, he's in prison, and he's affirming this and then, and then the idea is that's where the change can begin to occur. And I think the movie ends there, but it ends with this notion that, oh, he's hit rock bottom. He's in prison, I think he's in prison. He's in an AA meeting, uh, everything, he's lost everything. He's lost all his credibility. And that's the point whenever new life can start. And that's what I'm saying dialectically from the Kierkegaardian's perspective is, if you fully embrace the death of God, this Christic moment, this crucifix moment uh, in your life, which is very hard to do, we flee from it, we try to hide from it, you accept that, transformation happens. And what Christianity does in its narrative is it realizes that you're not starting there, right? You're starting with fleeing from your own humanity. So Christianity then brings you back to where you are. So in a way, you don't move at all. You return to where you've always been. But now instead of fleeing from it, you see that the transcendent is within that. You see God is within your humanity, the brokenness, the alienation. The moment that you feel alienated from God, you're closest to God because God is alienated from God. <laughs> That's the, the twisty dialectic logic of this. Uh, so Christianity returns you to where you are, but now you don't flee it. Now you affirm it. Now you embrace it. And in that embrace, it's robbed of its sting, which is what in theology is called, you know, robbing a sin of its sting death of its sting it no longer it's still the separation is there but it is robbed of its power um, that can then allow you to affirm life find joy and live and uh, if i had time i would want to show how grace is connected to that because grace is the experience of that radical acceptance forgiveness because to forgive a debt is different than to pay a debt to pay a debt is to fill the lack the debt whereas to forgive a debt is to say that nothingness is nothing it's not to fill the nothingness, it's to allow you to live with it, to rob it of its significance. Um, and, and joy, joy um, I think is an important theological category here as well. But I've talked about all of those concepts elsewhere. The whole idea of the Paro seminars, which um, uh, uh, I love is that in the past I was always giving one-off seminars and you couldn't build, but now I'm building. So this is just one part of the wider body of seminars. I hope you can see how this fits in with, with some of those other things we've explored. Um, uh, you know, I, something I didn't mention, for example, is I talked about evolutionary psychology and this notion of the instinct. But in psychoanalysis, there's the notion of drive, which simply is saying that there is no way to instinctively uh, affirm life. There is this antagonism within us that will stop us always from wanting the best for ourselves and for other people and that actually we have to come to terms with that drive in order to rob it of its sting not overcome it now one final thing i want to say uh, in this seminar and uh, i talk about this in more depth in a couple of other ones on transformance art and decentering practices you can look those up is that the liturgy for me is designed to do this for people to bring people into this experience. So very quickly, someone goes to church because they want God to help them, because they want God to fix something. Not everybody goes to church for that reason, but one of the big reasons to go to church is to find wholeness, to find completeness, because something is lacking in your life, something isn't working. Just like people go to AA, uh, some people might go to AA just for fun, right? But most people go to AA because they know there's a problem and they want it to be fixed. In the same way that most people go to psychoanalysis or psychotherapy or counseling because something isn't working and they go there to go back to get the holders back, get something back that they feel is missing. Now, the psychoanalyst uses that 
they don't tell the person when they sit down, hey, you're not gonna get back that person. You're not gonna find freedom from your traumas. You're gonna to have to look at your traumas. You're gonna to have to, to be honest, make peace with those traumas. You're gonna to have to tarry with them. And they will probably mark you for all of your life. But we can make sure that they don't destroy you. They don't make you miserable. That's not really what people want to hear. People want to hear that you can get rid of their trauma, you can get rid of the wound of being, right? But uh, a psychoanalyst will allow you to project that, will allow you to imagine that that's what you'll get. And very gradually they disabuse you of that. Very gradually you come to terms with, with the struggles that you have. In the same way, someone goes to church and the church can offer God. And it's important to think about this in relation to psychoanalysis actually, because in psychoanalysis there's three stages. And the first stage is you think the person is just like you. It's called the imaginary. So you sit down with the therapist and you're like, well, they're just a person getting paid to do a job, just like a doctor, just like an engineer, just like a teacher, right? There's no, no difference. What can they do for me? What magical cure do they have? Um, now, you, you often think that they do, like they have some sort of expertise, but they don't say anything. So it's frustrating. It's like, what expertise have you got? You're not, you're not saying anything. You're not giving me any diagnosis. But then very gradually you get to a second stage um, where therapy can't really happen, which is where you start to treat the other person as a stand-in for other people in your life. Uh, maybe for your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. These early relationships, you start to, you don't, you don't do it consciously, but you start to dream about your analyst maybe. You start, they start to take the place of your father. You think they're maybe judging you or your mother, that you think that they're, they're disappointed in you. And, uh, and that's important for, for analysis to work. And then finally, the analyst can be even more important. Not only are they the stand-in for some previous relationship, they kind of become that person in your internal life. And I said about the dreaming, you dream about them, they're in your fantasy life, they're in your imagination. So it's not simply that they're a stand-in, they're actually part of your, your very inner structure. And then they can begin to, to uh, have an effect. And one of the effects is to say nothing. One of the things they're doing is to show that, um, that that inner father or mother who is judging you is dead, it doesn't exist, it's not powerful. So whenever you want them to judge you and the, and the therapist doesn't judge you, there's a really weird sense in which you realize that that inner part of you is dead. That's not real. Not part of you that's always thinking you have to go out with somebody who your parents would hate, even after they've long since died, right? You, you find you're, you're doing this. That part of you, that, that part of you that you're rebelling against doesn't exist. It's dead. You don't, you don't need to pay any heed at all. In the same way, a person comes to church, and without even thinking about it, the minister is the stand-in for God. The worship is the stand-in for God. The entire liturgical structure is a type of stand-in for the absolute. Now then, Lacan says the temptation the analyst has to resist, the main temptation, is to give the analyzant what they want. Right? So what does the analyzant or the patient want? They want the analyst to fix them, to make it better, to be an authority figure who says it's all going to be fine. The analyst has to resist that temptation. In the same way, the temptation the priest has to avoid is a temptation to give the congregation what they want which is a liturgy that says everything's going to be fine. You know, God's there, it's all going to be fixed in this life or the next. Because right? that's what people want. If you're a minister, you can feel it as palpable when you're standing up there, right? You have to pretend. You may have all these doubts, not believe in half of what you're saying, but you have this, it's not even that you want to lie. It's like this expectation is on you to lie, to maintain an illusion that people want. Now in radical theology and in pyrotheology, transformance art is a liturgical structure that allows the congregation to project all of that desire onto you. And then you very subtly, through the liturgical practice, not give the, the congregation what they want. You rather show that there is doubt, 
complexity and ambiguity happening within the very liturgical structure itself, in the music, in the sermons, and in the prayers. It has to be very subtle, right? That's just, it happens as part of the, the, the unfolding of the liturgical hour. But very gradually, so the person, they project out, I want a God that will make me whole and complete. I want to escape my humanity. The liturgical structure feeds back the brokenness and the traumas of life in a sacred way, in a beautiful way. And then I, as the congregation member, begin to be able to accept that part of myself, to look at it, to feel it, to live with it. And weirdly, as I am able to enter into that experience more fully, the negative side of that begins to dissipate. And I start to find a new joy, a new affirmation within life. That's the, the death of God within the liturgical structure. Um, uh, how else could I say this? Um, I mean, in a way it is where the minister finds a way to talk about doubt and unknowing. It's like a singer-songwriter or a great comedian. You go to a singer-songwriter and they sing. And you go to a, a musician, like concert, because you want to escape the suffering of your life. Now, if you go to a pop band, that's what they'll give you, right? You go to Backstreet Boys or something like that. What they will give you is a way to escape the suffering of your life for two hours. But if you go to a good singer-songwriter, um, Hosier or something like that, uh, you will, through their music, they will talk about stuff, they will sing about stuff that is painful, that is about real life and real relationships and real suffering. And as you hear it sung through their lips, you can gradually start to encounter that within yourself, live with it, make peace with it, make space for it, and then you walk away feeling free. So again, you go to the singer-songwriter to escape maybe your suffering to flee it, but they, through their art, feed it back to you in this artistic way that allows you to begin to embrace it. And in embracing it, you become freed from it. That's this weird dialectic of going into something in order to be freed from it. <laughs> you go into your suffering to be freed from it. Uh, an example I've used before, I think it was Kent, um, um, friend Kent who, Dobson who, who gave me this example, but uh, you go to a therapist because there's like a trap door beside you and there's all these monsters in, in the basement of your life and you're trying to get away from the trap door. You don't want to be dragged down into the basement, but the therapist pushes you in. Right? You think you're there, to the, th the therapist is going to help you close the door to that basement. But actually the therapist is basically saying, no, you have to go in there in order to overcome it. You have to face the monster in order to defeat the monster. The more you flee the monster, the more the monster will arise. And so one of the ways you see that in contemporary society is the, the less you can look at the monstrosity of yourself, the more you project it out onto somebody else. And it's called beautiful soul. You become you and your community become pure and pure, and then you, the enemy becomes darker and worse and worse. And in many ways, they're actually just a disavowed reflection of something you cannot look at in yourself. And actually, the the way to dissipate the monstrosity of the other is to actually embrace your own monstrosity. And then you come out and you go, you may not like the other person. You may be able to politically disagree with them, fight against them, but they're no longer the demon. Because they're the demon only because you can't look at your own demon, right? So that's, that's, the, that's the structure. So transformance art is all about imagining a, a liturgical structure that can do that. And this is my critique of liberal lit liturgy as well. Is within conservative church, belief is centrally important, right? You have what you believe. You don't have to believe it. I mean, in fact, you shouldn't believe it. Uh, but you have to say you believe it. Right? So within a conservative church, you have all these beliefs that you sign up to. And the reason why I say you shouldn't actually believe them is, uh, if any of you have had experience of this, if you're in an evangelical church or something, you do want someone who really believes the stuff. They're a nightmare, right? They're the ones who uh, will be out on the street evangelizing three times a week, wanting you to pray and fast for weeks at a time for the lost, eternal loss of souls, right? They're the ones who... Uh, um, will uh, tell you to give all your money to the poor because God will pay the wages of people at the end of the week and you have to have enough faith, right? It's a nightmare. <laughs> you have to pretend you believe all that stuff, but you've got to keep the people who really do believe it at arm's length. You know, pat them on the back 
but not let them get too close. But belief is the shibboleth. But in liberal churches, it's not. You can uh, believe pretty much anything. You can have doubts, whatever. But the structure is important. So within, within evangelical circles, you can change the structure as much as you want. You play with lots of different things, but within a liberal setting, it's like, you can believe, you know, I don't know if God exists, that's fine. I think the devil might be a good guy, that's fine. I want to move the altar three feet to the right over my dead body, right? The liturgy is sacrosanct. And you'll notice that the liturgy holds a certain belief about God that probably no one in the congregation actually believes. But you have this God of certainty and warrior and all of that. So the radical liturgy is the one that says, no, we take the doubt and the ambiguity and we, we liturgically, we, we graft it into the liturgical structure itself so that the individual experiences existentially the death of God, the Christic moment, they feel the doubts, the unknowing, the trauma of that within their being. It, it, res it tremors within you. And in the tremoring of that experience of the death of God, the birth of God results. And the birth of God is the community of people living together, loving each other, working together. Um, and there, there's a theistic and an atheistic way of expressing that. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, a theistic. Uh, it, it blurs the distinctions between theism and the atheism, between sacred and profane. Uh, it, it, suddenly that's not what's centrally important, but what is important is that everybody undergoes this experience of loss. Right, so just to recap very quickly, and then I'll look to see if there's any questions. Um, you have the basic religious structure, which is wholeness, full, completeness, uh, which is, of course, uh, original blessings, sin and redemption. Then you have um, a kind of a, the radical theology understanding, which is, you no, know, you start with number two, loss, which where you imagine then something that exists before that loss and you fantasize about something that can fill that loss. Uh, and then you have Christianity which operates with a psychoanalytic thing, which is it starts with your desire to flee your humanity, your doubts, your brokenness, your unknowing. So it starts with that, just like capitalism does, just like um, modern ideology does, just like New Age mysticism does, just like Gnosticism does. It starts with this uh, negation of the self, right? That you can escape the world. But instead of feeding that, it actually then draws you back into life, into the grit and grime of the world uh, so that you can face it and experience it. And in that bringing you back to the place that you started, you find a new way to affirm life, a new depth and density in existence, a new understanding of God and spirituality and what religion is. And the, be the best or the simplest analogy that I think I used in this talk is that of a pop musician uh, in contrast to a singer-songwriter. You go to the pop musician to escape your life. And a lot of people go to church like that to escape their suffering and their brokenness. And they treat the church like a crack house or like a, like a bar to get drunken, right? You go to the pop star, you go to the pub to get drunk. Uh, you, you want to escape your suffering, totally fine. But a bad system keeps you there. It promises that it can do that for you and then it's even worse. But a good system allows you to think that that's what's gonna happen and then gradually brings you back to yourself. Uh, an analogy I've used in the past uh, is of course the Irish pub, because I think this is a good example, right? There's, there's the old sports bar where you go to get drunk, forget about your brokenness, escape your, your everyday life. The problem is the next day you have to go back and you know you get into a phase and once a week you have to go there. But a good Irish pub, uh, you go and you have a drink and you don't try to escape your suffering, you talk about it. You have a drink, you talk about your week. Uh, there's a singer in the corner who's singing about how he lost his one true love. right? And you listen and then you think about your own life and you talk to people and music's not too loud that you can't have significant conversations. So in the sports bar, it's pop music, it's sports, it's getting drunk. In the Irish pub, more likely it's about having a drink. It's about talking and about listening to music that actually is about real life. And in the latter, you come out better. 
maybe not after one experience of that, but if that's part of your week, once a week you have a liturgy of going to that place, then over time you're going to find yourself uh, able to affirm life in a wider and richer way and you're going to experience a, a greater depth and a greater joy in life. So that's what pyrotheology is in a nutshell. That's the map. That's what we're trying to do and that's what the, the, the theory does and the practice is transformance art and decentering practices and they are a series of practices that are designed to do exactly what I've just been describing. So I just uh, finish up if you have any questions because most of you will be watching this after the fact uh, you feel free to put them onto the Patreon or onto the Patreon Facebook page and uh, we can maybe start a discussion there. I hope that was clarifying in some way also feel free to push back this is not about getting agreement and getting us all on the same page. It's about hopefully opening up lines of discussion, interesting thoughts, and ultimately um, I want to be clarifying what this, this project is about because I do want to see more and more churches uh, concretely actually engage with this liturgical structure. I mean, that's, that's why I do this. And by the end of my life, I would love to see a dozen more churches that are, that are actively doing this. Uh, I'm excited about that possibility. All right, thanks very much for listening in. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.